Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. I'm joined today with Trevor Saponis. Trevor started his journey in education teaching English and journalism at an alternative high school in Queens, New York. After continuing to teach at several education nonprofits, he moved into district-level work with the City of New York Department of Education. As the director of university partnerships there, he improved teacher training programs by developing a blended learning model of teacher support. He got his doctorate from NYU in teaching and learning with research focused on environmental education for urban youth. Currently, he operates his own education consulting company, the Sustainable Learnings Project, focused on developing project-based learning opportunities, addressing the fundamental environmental challenges of our time for students all over the world. So can you tell us more about that project? What need did you see in education that challenged you to, to begin and found this organization? First and foremost, Tanya, thank you so much for having me. This is a really exciting opportunity. Uh, I love the series, so I'm glad to be here. The Sustainable Learning Projects is my own educational consulting company. And I think the best way to describe it is to tell you about one of the current projects that I'm doing. So I'm currently partnered with a district in Alaska, and we are collaborating to rewrite their high school biology curriculum as a place-based marine biology curriculum centered around the operation of a seaweed and shellfish farm. Um, And so when I say uh, the sustainable learning projects, the goal is to transform education for people on the planet. I think that's a really good uh, example of how that can actually work. The sustainable learning projects are efforts to connect students with their community and to really solve the problems that they're experiencing right there. So I'll stop there for right now. (laughs) Oh, that sounds great. That's super exciting and a great example. For a moment, it made me want to go to high school in Alaska. (laughs) And that's that's a great example of high school. Are you doing that with lower level schools as well, with elementary schools or middle schools? Or or what's your current clientele look like? So it looks different with each school or district or teacher that I work with. This one is a district level. This is a K-12 that only has about 240 students. So it looks different. So we're actually doing, this is mainly geared towards the high school level, um, but we're going to obviously have opportunities when you have an operational seaweed and shellfish farm. Part of the part of the goal is to actually feed the entire community, first and foremost. Um, as a traditional fishing village, the this form of an ocean farm is wonderful for its sustainable nature. It actually operates during the shoulder season between uh, the salmon and herring runs. So this really provides both an immediate solution to a challenge around an additional uh, food source, as well as a long-term goal for economic prosperity. Uh, the governor of Alaska recently announced that in 10 years, he wants this to be a $10 million business. And so to provide students with the learning that they can use now for an industry that they can be a part of, while obviously, and of, you know, one of my focuses is to make an impact right now. So are they actually building and starting the farm or is it a project that they're stepping into and taking over and maybe taking a role inside of something that's already beginning? Or are they learning the 
the business building and the entrepreneurship background alongside of the actual how to how to farm. You know, I really believe in from soup to nuts in terms of the learning design. So we are going to start with collecting wild seaweed. We are going to spawn that seaweed in the classroom. Then we will, you know, not to get too much in the weeds, but we will get those seedlings on a twine wire. Then we will plant those in the ocean. They will care for them while they're in the water. Then they will harvest them and then they will process them. I think that that approach is really what we need to do. We need to have students become the experts and say, these are real challenges that we're dealing with right now. How do we keep the water at 50 degrees for the correct spawning temperature? How do we weight the lines in the water so that they don't rise too high or or don't go too low? Um, These are all real world challenges that have direct impacts on the outcomes. And this is exactly the type of work that we want students to be doing. Yeah, that sounds amazing. (laughs) What a great opportunity for those kids to be able to really start something and be a part of something from the beginning. Yeah, that's exactly what we need to do. And and again, this is place-based. I realize that not all schools are on the ocean. And so we have two more projects that COVID-19 has certainly slowed down. But the other two are, number one, community composting. Food waste is an enormous environmental challenge and one that is really so silly in terms of it's it's very solvable and it's very solvable right now. And the current statistics that I'm familiar with is that each student in every school is generating about 0.8 pounds per food waste per day. Wow. And what ends up happening is all of that simply goes into landfill, becomes methane and contributes to greenhouse gas. So what I'm proposing to work with schools are is to have students collect the food waste, compost the food waste, turn it into an actual product, and then growing food is a direct result from their efforts, right? A circular economy. Uh, We need students engaging in what the future is going to look like. And and ideally, and hopefully, what I want to see is a circular economy moving forward. Yeah, the more that we can reduce and reuse and keep things within our own cycle, (laughs) the better it is for everyone on the planet. And I think definitely during this time, during shelter in place, it's something that we're all seeing from a personal perspective, you know, just how much comes into our house and how much is going out on a regular basis where we might not pay as much attention if we're not always home. (laughs) So, you know, taking... Taking that idea of composting food waste, you know, from a scale of a school, you know, taking the lens of a parent, that's definitely something that families could even take on right now as a family project or a family challenge. Do you have other ideas for families or for small group educators of things that they could do right now where their kids could learn and help the planet? Yes, I do. Um, And I'm actually trying to put some videos out on how to do that. Composting is certainly the first uh, the first one. It's really one of the easiest. There are some rudimentary ways to get over the initial fears around pests and smells and some of those other things and just really actually get into having, you know, it only really takes around 40 to 60 days for most food waste, certainly that's generated at a school to become reusable soil. Um, and having that time frame right now is certainly a possibility. Longer term, and this is the other project that I'm hoping to engage with with schools, is uh, reforestation efforts. So 
having schools, and this is really geared, I've worked a lot in rural schools, and so I think this will obviously be more effective with rural schools who have the space, but imagine if students were in charge of a thousand or 5,000 trees for a year or two years. So they start in elementary school and they get, you know, they're in charge of a hundred seedlings at their school and they water them for a year or two years or three years and they see them grow and then they plant those trees and then they water those trees and then they fertilize those trees. I think that what this does is it allows us to understand our impact on the planet in a much more direct way. So much of the climate solutions that are proposed, we're really just outsourcing to other people. And I want learning in schools to be focused around every student being able to make an impact every day. Well, I, I think part of what that would also do is really build a sense of responsibility to each individual student and to the school as a whole, and hopefully to the community who would be seeing this taking place, that we really do have a responsibility to take care of our environment and take care of the things around us. and when we do that and when we choose to make an impact, especially if you have students starting from elementary school and they're watering these same trees through 12th grade, you know, when we choose to make an impact, you really can literally see what happens in a project like that. Absolutely. And it's just, it's that lack of connection both to the land and to the ability to make an impact. You know, when we look at standardized curriculum, when you have a single teacher in a single classroom looking and evaluating student work, it's not surprising to me that students don't care. Um, and in my work across the country, the most common question, you know, I've been putting on professional development sessions across a wide variety of uh, rural schools, urban schools, uh, K-12, K-20. And the most common question I get from educators is, how do you make them care? And I have a very consistent response, do something that matters. And I really truly believe that we need to make learning relevant and learning impactful on themselves and their community, which is why the tagline of my company is transforming education for people on the planet. We need to have that impact right now. Yeah, you, you brought up a little bit about training and developing educators and you spent a lot of time currently, but also in past lives doing professional development and working with educators. So what do you see as the resistance to adoption of project-based learning? Or what is the biggest challenge that schools have with moving to more of a, a project model? It just, it doesn't seem to be easy for most schools. And I'm curious what, what you've heard and what your experience has been. Yeah, that has certainly been my experience that it's not easy. And it's because it's unfamiliar. We have teachers who themselves went through 20 years of education through a memorization-based factory model. And to actually tell them, hey, do it completely differently, um, that is not surprising given what we know about human development and just humans in general. What I see happening right now is that the transition to distance learning has really exposed how poor a lot of the learning design is. I think you can get basic compliance from a student when they're in the room. And then once you move to distance and the task is unrelated, is low level, is memorization based, when then the student and then their parents can see how distant it is from any sort of real world application, I think that's what we're seeing right now in terms of the, 
the frustration and the anguish at every level from students, parents to teachers. Now, the bigger question is, of course, how we make that transition. And I think there are a number of things that parents and teachers can do. Not sure if I should jump into those quite yet. But no, that, that's exactly where I was going to go next is what, you know, how can educators be most successful in a virtual or even a blended learning environment? You know, what does that look like? Are the skill sets different? What can help to make educators more successful? Educators can be more successful by designing open-ended project-based learning opportunities. And what that means is that they're going to lose a certain amount of control, but it's actually encouraging because control has consistently meant teachers standing up in front of the room and speaking. Um, One of the things that I like to share is I've probably visited close to a thousand classrooms uh, all over the country, and I have consistently seen a teacher-to-student talk ratio roughly average around 90-10. And what I mean by that is 90% of the time teachers are talking and 10% students are talking. That's not how learning works. That's not what we know about the way in which students make meaning. And so I'll just quickly add what I think is also most interesting is that when I ask teachers around that, they consistently represent their student talk ratio as close to 50-50. So there's this fundamental misunderstanding from a teacher perspective. And then what we actually do is in work with me, we show video and then we just, you know, if there is a certain amount of resistance, we use a stopwatch. But once, usually once you break out the video and, and replay what's actually going out on screen, they can see that there is very little learning that's actually happening at the student level. So that is all to say, we just need to, A, ask our students what it is they want to do, and then provide and facilitate those learning environments to, to scaffold that. I understand that that is a challenge and that there will be failures around that, but we need to change that mindset around what education looks like. It is impossible for a teacher to have all the answers, and it's unrealistic for us to expect teachers to have all the answers. So if we can change the role of a teacher into a facilitator as an educator, as a critical thought partner to say, what is it that you want to learn? How will you demonstrate evidence of that? What do you think your assessment should look like? All right, now get to work. That will allow for a reduction in lecture and truly a transition to student-centered learning. Yeah, so... So what I'm what I'm hearing you say is that teachers right now feel like they're they have a talk ratio of about 50-50, which isn't true. And they're they have most of the control of the classroom. And I think for a lot of teachers and a lot of people in general, it's really scary to give up some of that control. But shifting that teacher mindset, that educator mindset, that whole district mindset from a the teacher knows everything and you must learn from me to almost that of a coach. Is, is what it sounds like, where you're really partnering with a student, asking students what, what they need, what they want to learn, what's interesting to them, and then providing a framework around that for them to be successful in their learning. That's absolutely right. That's an excellent summary. And I understand that it's hard and I understand that it's going to be messy. But when we have, um, you know, just yesterday, Cleveland's uh, the district, uh, the city of Cleveland said that they were going to moved into mastery-based learning and get rid of grades themselves and uh, and have grade bands of mixed-age students. 
you know, there are examples of people trying this right now. And I think it's really, really hopeful and encouraging that they understand that the status quo is not serving all students. Wow. That's really interesting to hear that a large district is doing that. There are, I mean, I know of lots of pockets of private schools and our school included where we we have a competency learning model. We have small mixed age classes. We don't specifically have grades. We assess kids on you know, their skills, whether it's emerging, whether it's progressing, whether they're proficient or whether they've mastered it, um, not on a, you know, you've passed, you've failed. You, you know, it's just, is this skill emerging? Yeah, it is. You're learning it great. We'll keep moving forward until you can master this project. And then we move on to the next thing. But I haven't heard of a large school district shifting to that learning. So that's really encouraging. Absolutely. I believe it's still in the committee phase, uh, <laughs> but there's certainly a pretty big headline around that. And I yeah. think that is what it's going to take. And I think that we need to encourage and celebrate that and have them understand that this is what every stakeholder wants. We need a change. I can feel some parents being very resistant to that and coming up with a lot of the issues that they're feeling right now. And one of the things I hear a lot of is, I'm afraid that if it's not assessment-based, that if they're not moving with their grade level, that they're going to fall behind. And this whole concept of falling behind, how would you address that with parents who are concerned about shifting learning models and afraid their student isn't going to learn everything they need to learn? Absolutely. So this is what I tell to all parents. I I get a little closer to them and I look them in the eye and I say, parents, your child is not falling behind. Your child is not falling behind. The entire idea of age-related and content benchmarks are an invention that no longer serve the current system. The age and content-related benchmarks create a system where for two days in November, You are supposed to learn the causes and effects of World War II. And then at the end of the year, you're going to have three multiple choice questions on the causes and effects of World War II. And that is not the type of learning or engagement or experience that anyone wants for anyone, young people or old people. It's simply a relic of a system that no longer serves us and we need to let it go. So that's the first and foremost thing that I tell them. They are not falling behind. Um, I always imagine, imagine if we had monthly benchmarks on whether infants could walk, right? We could, we could absolutely do that. And we could shame and evaluate parents on whether their 10-month-old who couldn't walk, couldn't walk. We could do that, but we choose not to because we realize that everyone is going to most likely be able to walk. And in the same way, education, which is now a lifelong learning adventure, ideally, we don't need to cram in a certain amount of knowledge. And considering we have the internet, which is another one of my favorite sayings, we have the internet, um, knowledge-based memorization serves no purpose. And we need to have people with higher level thinking skills to be able to assess and interpret and most immediately implement and impact the world around them. And that's one of my fundamental questions with all the parents and teachers and administrators. How is the work that you're doing with young people impacting the world around them? It's a great place for a conversation to start. I will just add one more thing. 
more pragmatically, and this is certainly the case for me, I think you can see my my small child's chair over there. <laughs> there are three things that a parent can do that immediately. Number one, create a schedule. Schools have consistently helped by that they do in fact have schedules. Young people are supported by schedules. Um, so if you can create a schedule that in some way so that young people know what time they're supposed to do something, I have firsthand as well as in a number of conversations seen how that helps a lot of people. Secondly, ask your student what they want to learn. Ask your child what they want to learn. And that conversation may take time. It, that conversation looks different for a first grader than it does look for a junior. Um, but just consistently ask them and watch them and what are they doing and what are they playing on the computer or otherwise. You know, how, how do we facilitate those interests. And the last thing, and this is probably the most important, is do something, make something. Whether that's a video that you post on YouTube or TikTok, whether that is a one-person production of Macbeth, it really doesn't matter, but we need to get away from education as passive acceptance to active participation. And so do something with them and facilitate the experience so that they can engage and create something and then share it with the world. I love that we need to move from passive acceptance to active participation. I couldn't agree more. And kids are happier that way. Like they want to come to school. Our kids after Christmas break, and I've never seen this in the years I've, I was a kid or the years that I've been around elementary schools, but all of our kids bounced into the classroom with smiles on their faces and were super excited to come back to school and happy Christmas break was over because they're engaged and they're interested and they're doing something. And I think for parents, it's really important for us to remember to ask our kids what they want to do and then to facilitate those interests. That's Absolutely. I just, I have to emphasize that point. The idea that the people experiencing education are the last people we listen to is preposterous and laughable and honestly a little bit tragic. And we need to, to be able to say, is this suiting you? Is this serving you? Is this useful for you? Is this a joyous act, which we all know it can be? And if it's not, let's make a change. Yeah, I think, I mean, part of it's definitely a shift in education. I think part of it's definitely a generational shift. You know, we came out when I was a kid, it was children are seen and not heard. And your opinion wasn't asked. You did what you were told and there weren't any other options. And so to shift as a society into a place of asking children what they want, not only at home, but in education also, is a big shift for a lot of people, aside from the shift of teachers, you know, moving them from the expert in a field to more of a coach and facilitator which students are still going to learn the same information, but when they come at it from an angle that's interesting to them, then they retain it and it makes more sense. And they're actually engaged and involved because now they're interested in something. Like I, I couldn't tell you the causes and effects of World War II, even if I filled it out on a multiple choice test years ago, I couldn't tell you that. But if we looked at war as conflict and what was the beginning of this conflict and what causes two people to be in conflict, now you have something that's useful that you can remember, that you can you know, attach to any war or any interpersonal relationship. And it just makes learning so much more cohesive. Absolutely. I second that. <laughs> Thank you. Well said. Uh, so what haven't we talked about that you feel is important in today's educational landscape? What we haven't talked about yet is the fact that right now, amidst the challenges, 
are the opportunities. And we are currently looking at the elimination of two of the most important things that have held back educational innovation. The first being seat time and the second being standardized testing. Seat time is the way in which we are still currently operating all K through 20 educational mm -hmm. systems. And when I tell that to non-educators, it stuns and stupefies them, and it should. It is a laughably inadequate measure for learning, and we need to move away from that immediately. Abolish it, get rid of it, put it in the trash, next. It's simply, I wouldn't even give that the credit of being a 100-year-old idea. It's probably closer to 500 years. The idea that a, we're measuring learning by people sitting in an actual seat is embarrassing, honestly, for all of us. The second thing is standardized testing, and it's overwhelmingly encouraging and fortuitous for us that just yesterday, the University of California abandoned both the SAT and the ACT as admission requirements. And I really think that this is the, the beginning of a death knell for standardized testing. And it should be because the intention that standardized testing as a college access tool uh, that it was originally began with simply doesn't exist anymore. And it really exists as a barrier and gives us information that we already know. The information that we already know is that people from higher socioeconomic status do better than people from lower socioeconomic status on rote memorization questions that the higher socioeconomic status can pay people to help them study with. And so this is really an encouraging moment for the elimination of standardized testing. And that really is something that I would ask all parents, all stakeholders to do. Educational innovation will not continue to happen without the continued elimination of those two things. And so we all need to collectively work to say sitting in seats is not learning and being able to choose from one of four choices uh, where one is the most right and one is actually there to distract you is not really evidence of A, learning, and then B, impacting the world, which is really what the ultimate purpose of our learning and education is. So what, what should assessments look like? How do you assess students in a project-based model when you're assessing, I guess you're, learning, you're assessing a learning process? Absolutely. First and foremost, we need to ask the students, what are you learning? Self-assessment. Right? Mm -hmm. Self-assessment, first and foremost. And we can develop uh, benchmarks and consistent questions and concepts that we want to, uh, that we want to include in, to have students think about, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But we need to first and foremost ask students, what is it that you're learning? And then have the second part, and this is really a part of a number of uh, school networks, such as Big Picture Learning, is public-facing uh, performance of that learning. So what that looks like at the high school level and at the middle school level has consistently been portfolio-based presentations of their work that is open to the public. And so, you know, to go back to the, to the project in Alaska, some of the work that they're doing, I'll just quickly share this story, there are currently three commercial species of seaweed under cultivation in the state of Alaska. There are 10 species of seaweed that are available for the, that have been approved by the state for cultivation. So therefore there are seven species of seaweed 
that no one has the time, energy, of money to research, right? Not universities, not businesses, no one. So we'll never know if those are an absolute panacea. We'll never know about the medicinal qualities of that. We'll never know about their food grade applications. We'll never know about their ability to feed communities unless we have students engage in that. So part of the work that we're doing is we're trying to, for the first time, grow a non-commercially cultivated species of black seaweed. And then those students are going to present to the state, to the scientists, to the farmers, actual content that all of those people deeply care about. And then that those students could potentially start a business based on their research. And so when I talk about public facing learning, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it matters to them, it matters to their community, and it matters to the world. I'll share one quick story from an elementary level. So one of our graduate standards at our school is influencing action. So how do the students take the skills and the concepts that they're learning in school and influence some action in the world around them? Um, this year, we have a little therapy dog who's paralyzed in his back legs as our school ambassador. Uh, and this year, our students partnered with a Mountain View High School engineering capstone team that was building a prosthetic device for disabled pets. And their goal is to create an open source website where anybody could come, they could put in the dimensions of their pets, and they could you know, rebuild this thing, whether it's 3D printed or they haven't finished a prototype of what it's going to look like. But essentially, you know, the idea is that they're using our dog as the prototype to create something that could help pets all over the world. And so the idea that students as young as five years old are now learning the engineering process, they're learning how to brainstorm, they're learning how to look at problems and solutions and test solutions, and then go the next step forward and figure out, okay, that solution didn't work. Why didn't it work? How can we tweak it? And being a part of that process. Uh, is just an amazing opportunity, and I'm, I'm really excited. I like. I really hope the project works and takes off because I'd love to see one of our kindergartners now in like fifth grade and see a random dog walking down the street with this device that they had a chance to be a part of creating. Um, so it can be done at any level. But it's really important that we give kids that responsibility and trust them that they can do that research and they can present it and they can really make an impact on the world. Oh, perfect. And that's exactly, it is really amazing how aligned we are in our philosophies. And I absolutely agree. At any level, these students need to be able to engage in learning that impacts the world around them. And I love the fact that you have A, a therapy dog, and B, you're actually designing the learning experiences around what's happening and the needs in your community. That's all we need to do. And this idea of, you know, the idea that every student in America is going to learn about World War II on a Tuesday in November doesn't work anymore. It actually never worked, and we have 50 years of data to prove that. And so we just need to provide these other experiences. And I understand it's going to look a little bumpy in terms of how are we going to assess? How are we going to assess? We're going to ask the people who are engaged in it. We're going to ask the students. We're going to ask the teachers. We're going to ask the administrators. And then they're going to demonstrate this transparently, publicly, rather than taking a multiple choice test and six to nine months later having results that somehow are translated on, on scales and scores that people don't understand so that, and then somehow affects public funding of that school and get, they then get a grade. It's simply not the way 
learning and particularly assessment was ever designed to operate. So thank you so much for knowing that that is uh, such a beautiful way to move forward with the work at your school. Oh, no, and thank you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for sharing your ideas on transforming education, people, and the planet. Um, do you wanna share any information on how to get in touch with you? You have a, a website or information you'd like to like shared? Absolutely. So the, my organization's website is the sustainable learning projects, plural.com. Um, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter. I have a Instagram for the sustainable learning projects as well as Facebook. So I am certainly on all the social media platforms. I've been really putting some effort into sharing a lot of the information around what's happening because I do think that we're in a transformative moment and there's just so much opportunity. I understand that the feeling on the ground and as the parent of two small children, I am certainly there on the front lines of, of experiencing those challenges, but this is a wonderful opportunity and we are in the midst of seeing profound transformation in our educational systems and that really makes me optimistic and hopeful. Well, thank you so much. I hope that parents found something useful. I hope that educators are able to draw from this and make some shifts in their virtual learning. And when we go back to school, this is the way we view education. So I appreciate your perspective and thanks so much for your time today. All right, Tanya, can't wait to continue to be in touch. Thank you so much. Likewise, thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.